It's not on. Is that better? So it is really lovely to be here and just walking into the room and walking in with all your energies. Um, I felt so at home and I, you know, that isn't always what I feel when I walk into a space. So this feels like a, 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 a very special place that extends itself so beautifully that a that I, as a stranger, can come in and feel at home. So, thank you. Also, thank you for your practice. Thank you for just being here. I wanted to talk about patience, which um, is a wonderful talk for me because I have the predisposition to impatience particularly. I don't know if you have heard Dharma talks about personality types. You probably have. You know, the greedy, aversive, and deluded personality types. Yeah? Yeah? So, um, anyway, I'm aversive. And so, one of the characteristics of aversive personality types is impatience. So, it's, um, it's a wonderful practice for me, and also a wonderful practice contemplating it, um, and preparing for it so that hopefully it continues to support and awaken my own patience. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a beautiful quality, part of the paramis, the perfections. It is said that when the um, Gautama, many, many, many um, lifetimes previous to his lifetime as, as the um, Gautama who awakened as the Buddha, came across another Buddha. He was so inspired by the beautiful qualities of this being that he knelt in front of that Buddha whose name I've forgotten and said, I dedicate myself to becoming a Buddha. And in that dedication, he saw the qualities that needed to be perfected in order to become a Buddha. Patience was one of those qualities. And it's beautiful just to contemplate that it's, it was said, it's said in um, the Vasudhimaga, the commentaries of the Buddhist teachings, that it took uncountable eons in order for the Buddha to be, to perfect the qualities of the paramis, of generosity, of ethical living, of renunciation, of truthfulness, of wisdom, of patience, of energy, of loving kindness, of equanimity. These, um, these amazing qualities. And, and I, and I name that eons and eons because in this culture there isn't a lot of support to place our practice, the cultivation of the beautiful qualities of our mind and I, our heart in that context, in that very long context. And I know for myself that um, especially in the beginning of my practice, I would sit down and I would have this kind of instant coffee expectation, you know, that I would get it and I would get it immediately. And if I didn't get it immediately, then there was something wrong. And I, my first teacher was Ruth Dennison. Uh, who um, was uh, empowered to teach by Ubekin, the same teacher who empowered Goenka to teach. So I come from that lineage. And I had a profound opening early on in my meditation practice, which was both a great blessing and an incredible challenge because I hadn't developed the perfections and I hadn't developed patience. I had this driving urge, this 
triple A goal-oriented urge to recreate the experience. And every sitting, year after year after year, was this battle. And you can imagine the incredible suffering that came from thinking that meditation experience, and meditation was about having certain experiences, rather than the cultivation of these qualities that purify our heart and mind. So it's been such a beautiful practice for me, just looking at it from that perspective. And also, coming from South Africa, where my parents were very active against the apartheid movement and were imprisoned and then had to go into hiding. So I grew up in the midst of, um, it wasn't very big in the beginning, uh, the anti-apartheid movement and uh, with Mandela and Robert Sobukwe and Walter Sisulu and Joe um, and Ruth Slovo and, and the activists, uh, that first wave of activists, or um, not, there were many activists before them, but that were uh, uh, heralded particularly um, fighting apartheid. And my parents were in jail for a while and then came to realize they weren't able to be parents to us, me and my sisters, and so decided to give up their citizenship and signed what's called an affidavit where you give up your passport and you're given a, a piece of paper, an exit permit, which allows you to leave the country. And so we left the country. And we arrived in um, first Israel because we didn't have passports and we're Jews and that was the only country that would automatically let us in with our passports. A difficult country to land in after South Africa, another complicated and challenging situation. And so actually we left Israel and went to England and asked for political asylum. And my parents found jobs and settled there. And in that process of sort of settling into London, I watched how much they lost connection with the struggle, active struggle, because they lost the, the um, patience and the connection to their vision of freedom. They thought that it was an impossible task. And so I, I saw how despairing they, they became of um, trusting that liberation and change actually would be possible. And I think about that. And I think also about Mandela and that he never, never lost that trust and that confidence in the possibility of freedom. And I think of the Buddha through eons and eons of very difficult lives as well, never losing that trust and confidence. Patience is that capacity to stay connected to our vision and our longing for freedom because it allows for the difficulties and imperfections that actually happen in our lives without becoming reactive or despairing or hopeless in holding those challenges and difficulties. And, um, and often when their Dharma talks, you know, particular people are held up as inspiration apart from the Buddha. And um, I wanted to name more than just one or two because we are part of a lineage. And I feel so grateful to this lineage. We're part of a lineage of communities that have been profoundly patient and that have sustained that vision of freedom and liberation, of kindness and love and generosity through profound difficulties. So I want to honor 
in this um, lineage, Oscar Romero, who maybe many of you knew, who was the archbishop in El Salvador, who challenged the structures of the church and the junta, and really aligned himself with the liberation movement there and was murdered, and knew he was going to be murdered. And in knowing it, never ever lost hope, but held that understanding that actually these qualities that we're talking about go beyond life and death. Winona LeDuc, who is still living and who is the um, environmental indigenous activist. John Trudell, whose wife and children and mother-in-law were murdered by the FBI as he organized that very early um, part of AIM and the occupation of Alcatraz. And who says, no matter what they ever do to us, we must always act for love, love for our people and love for the earth. We must not react out of hatred against those who have no sense. Mother Jones, the Catholic labor activist, Vandana Shiva, Bernard Ruskin, the Quaker active, queer activist, May Reed McGuire, who was a um, woman who was um, walking down the road during the worst of the conflict in Ireland, and the police were uh, chasing uh, what they thought was an IRA activist, and the IRA activist, or whoever he was, lost control of the car, and the car killed her children and nieces. And um, she never lost hope as well and went on to become an incredible activist, organizing women to demonstrate for peace, crossing both Catholic and Protestant areas of, of, um, of Ireland. And um, Rigberta Menchu, the Mayan indigenous um, activist in Guatemala, whose family was also arrested and tortured and who organized resistance to military oppression. So we have a community of activists surrounding us um, who also call us to that incredible commitment. And, um, and I think about it particularly because, as I had said early on in this evening, I've moved from Northampton here to Oakland. And I had previously to this move been in a number of monasteries in England and um, France and Australia and had put my stuff in storage. And so I moved the stuff that had been in storage here and was very excited because I hadn't actually lived with my art or my bed or my clothes for many, many years um, being in the monasteries and found that everything was moldy that everything was moldy. And it was such a, a letting go and a grieving of my history, because as you know, the stuff that we have is also a reflection of the many different experiences we've had that we've lived through. And I had to say goodbye to all of it, including my desk, my chairs, my filing cabinets. So, I went through this process. It took a while, and so I was living with very moldy things and developed a very severe sensitivity to mold and then to other smells. This has just been in the space of six weeks while I've been here. So anyway, I went shopping with my sister to Office Max looking for another desk and, and chose one that didn't have any wood because I when you buy something that's new and wooden, it has different odors. So I got something that was metal and glass, and we just unpacked it yesterday. And they must have sprayed the metal with some kind of stuff because I can't have it in my room. Meanwhile, I've also really hurt my back carrying up the chair. And I noticed this morning while I was meditating this contraction of the mind, you know, 
and just into that sort of like sort of hopelessness, you know, of like this is just too much, you know. And it was so beautiful to catch it and to know that the energies of feeling overwhelmed or despairing or hopeless or, or feeling aversive are not energies that bring healing, are not energies that open the heart. And that the kinds of commitment we have to come here and to watch our breath or to come back to ourselves if we're driving the car and notice that we're sitting or to come back to ourselves and standing, that that commitment that we've made, whether it's just been for some days or over the years, gives us the capacity to know what our experience is in those moments and to catch them. To catch them in the context of understanding where our freedom lies, whether it's the freedom that Archbishop Romero or Mandela or my parents or perhaps some of your parents um, or children are upholding, or whether it's the freedom within us that knows that freedom is always, always only an expression of love, of kindness and caring, of patience and gentleness and generosity. And in aligning the mind, in aligning the mind, so watching that contraction and saying, that isn't the path. It isn't the vision of freedom. You can't go there, Arena. And, and just sort of inviting that presence and love to hold the pain in my back, to hold the contraction in my body around the smell. And, and watching love and presence meet it, and then immediately the contraction coming back again, and sort of inviting the mind to come back to that allowing and openness, that sort of, no, just creating that witnessing and companioning of the experience, and then watching the contraction again, and really seeing what the teaching said about patience, which is that you can't grow it when things are going easily. That patience actually only happens when we're being really challenged. You know? And, and I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to talk about tonight. I'm going to talk about patience. Because it took that enduring commitment to the vision to keep holding the contraction not believing the storyline around it, and bringing love and mindfulness back to meet the experience. It reminds me of something that has stayed with me all through these years of practice. Um, and the Buddha described our practice as facing an army, each one of us, a thousand times over, with um, facing that army a thousand times over, numbered a th of a thousand um, people in that army that we were facing, so that we battle this army a thousand times over um, with, um, let's see, we face an army of a, th of a thousand a thousand times over. That's what the practice is like. Each moment is this challenge, and each challenge becomes the conditions for patience. One of the most incredible grounds for me in understanding what my practice is about and how the cultivation of the paramis and patience fits in, is the understanding that karma and the dynamics of karma mean every moment we actually let go of believing a negative energy, we are creating the grounds of our liberation. 
every moment we commit, no matter what happens in, uh, subsequently, each moment we intend to a beautiful energy like patience or generosity or kindness, we are actually transforming ourselves. I don't know if any of you have studied the Abhidharma. It's the uh, part of the Buddha's teaching where it said that Sariputra, inspired by the Buddha, was able to analyze each moment of consciousness. It, it said that in a second, we have thou a thousand moments of consciousness, that it is happening incredibly quickly. And so you can just imagine the capacity of the Buddha's mind or Sariputra's mind to see into each moment of consciousness. And um, in each moment of consciousness, there are, there are a combination of 52 mental qualities of the mind. The first seven are always there. And that is the ca contact, the capacity of, for example, the eyes to see a form. And along with contact is perception, the capacity to see or to um, understand the particular marks or qualities of that form which memory is included in so that we understand what it is, that a chair is a chair. So some sorts of things like that, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is one of those. And then he said there were 14 unwholesome energies. Greed, hatred, fear, aversion, desire, sloth, torpor, anxiety, restlessness, doubt, a lack of shame at doing something wrong, probably what those young teenage boys um, experienced when they were, um, you've, you've probably all heard on the news, raping that young girl at Richmond High School, a lack of remorse at doing wrong. These 14 qualities all come from three from three negative energies. All the negative energies that we experience come from three roots. They come from ignorance or delusion, wrong view, and restlessness. The Buddha describes ignorance as not seeing things as they truly are or not seeing where our suffering is and where the ending of suffering is. And I find it so liberating to understand that any of those negative energies are rooted in wrong view, in not seeing the situation clearly as it is. So, for example, when someone is stamping through my house and slamming the door in the middle of the night because they're coming in late. And I watch this irritation arise, and it's like, why can't they be quiet? It's just something as simple as that. It's amazing to reflect on that thought is rooted in not seeing things as they really are. And that because it isn't, I am creating suffering for myself and the world around me. The other side of it is that the energies of the paramis, the energies of patience, only bring liberation, well-being, and the transformation of the heart and mind. So that when we're in, when we're in situations that are difficult and we reflect on the vision of liberation, of healing, in facing difficulties, we have this choice of do I perpetuate my suffering through the negative reactions or can I choose because I know I'm not seeing it correctly and what tells me I'm not seeing it correctly is because I'm experiencing the negative qualities of mind, can I choose to let them go in order to see things as they truly are, in order to see things as um, um, with a kind heart, a loving heart, or a generous heart. So um, 
So that's this capacity that the Buddha invited us to, this capacity to see according to our reactions, according to what we describe as the emotions coming in. Are we seeing things correctly and truly or not? And if they're true, then it automatically means there, is the, there are the beautiful qualities of mind. So when I'm thinking something, like this guy stomping through my house late at night, and there isn't kindness, I know it's not true. If it isn't true, there isn't patience there. How did Mandela sit in the cell for 30 years? He wasn't a Buddhist. And I'm sure he had that same capacity to discern how to hold the alignment to liberation through understanding when his reactions were distorting his perception. And he could tell that distortion because there wasn't kindness or patience or generosity or love associated with the thought or response. And I also think of, um, when I think of patience, I think of Bishop Tutu. I don't know if any of you have heard him. He is such an incredible being, the Archbishop um, in South Africa, and he headed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I, um, and I don't know if you know about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but they invited people um, from all parts of South Africa to meet in different towns and villages over a number of years and to speak their truth of the suffering they endured, the torture through the police or the murder or um, the beatings by the police or the underground secret service. And Bishop Tutu sat in hearing after hearing, day after day after day, listening to these stories. And I can only imagine the incredible patience that it must take to listen to these stories and to hold the vision of love so that there isn't despair and that sense of being overwhelmed. And it has been such an inspiration to me because as I read the news about what's going on in the world, and what's going on in the Senate and the House of Representatives here. And I watch how easy it is for my mind to move into despair or hopelessness. Like, there are so many things wrong with the world. Is there anything that we can do? You know, and I watch that feeling and that thought come up inside of me. And then I think of Bishop Tutu. And I heard him recently on YouTube talking to, um, it was the Santa Cruz University. And he said over and over again, he said, there's this word called Ubuntu in Swahili. And Ubuntu means family, but not just family as in blood family, but family in the sense that I cannot be a human being alone. I can only be a human being if I open to you as a human being and allow your humanity to awaken my own humanity. That I can't live without you. That is Ubuntu. And he spoke about Ubuntu. And he wasn't just giving this kind of lecture. You could feel that he was speaking from his heart, that we are one family. And he was speaking from his heart that we are one family, not in this kind of Hollywood romantic gloss, you know, where at the end of a movie, there's this, you know, this lovely schmaltzy music, da, 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 and they walk hand in hand and everything is cool and groovy, you know. But rather in hearing the reality of what happens when we forget love in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he was still, and that is patience, he was still able to hold this vision of Ubuntu, 
that is the capacity that the Buddha was speaking about when he was speaking about our capacity to be patient in the face of the incredible challenges that we face as human beings. And that this challenge isn't this undefeatable wall of obstacles, but rather the invitation to grow the strength that our hearts might open to Ubuntu, that our hearts might open to this incredible resilience that the Buddha and so many people have shown us to never forget our capacity for freedom and love. That just like the Buddha practiced over eons, or Mandela or John Trudell, we have this incredible capacity, and we remind each other of, a, of it. So as I sit here, there is the reminder. And as you sit, there is the reminder to me of our capacity to be Ubuntu, or family. So I'd like to end with um, um, this um, um, a story by Harold Schulweiss called Playing with Three Strings. We have seen Yitzhak Perlman, who walks the stage with braces on both legs on two crutches. He takes his seat, unhinges the clasps of his legs, tucking one leg back and extending the other laying down his crutches, placing the violin under his chin. On one occasion, one of his violin strings broke. The audience grew silent, but the violinist did not leave the stage. He signaled the maestro, and the orchestra began its part. The violinist played with power and intensity on only three strings. With three strings, he modulated, changed, and recomposed the piece in his head. He retuned the strings to get different sounds, tuned then upward and downward. The audience screamed delight, applauded their appreciation, asked later how he had accomplished this feat. The violinist answered, it is my task to make music with what remains a legacy mightier than a concert. Make music with what remains. Complete the song left for us to sing. Play it out with heart, soul, and might, with all remaining strength within us. So thank you. Thank you for your listening. So uh, this is a time for discussion, for sharing, sharing your own experiences of patience <coughs> and the cultivation of patience. Or if you have any questions, um, further questions. Um, I'm wondering um, what you saw when you saw clearly this man walking through your house making a lot of noise. Because you, you mentioned about seeing things clearly, but I'm wondering what the vision was you had.
in, when I think about 30 years of practice and you know what what it brings for me it is that profound certainty that that moment of ir irritation was an expression of not seeing things clearly it was that seeing and that certainty that because there wasn't <coughs> kindness being directed towards him or um, ease, that I wasn't seeing things clearly, that I was, that my, that the distortion happened almost at the same time that the aversion arose in being woken up. Now, it's not like I'm judging myself that it happened, but just to understand, because being committed to the Dharma is the understanding deeply and living from that understanding of freedom. And freedom is love. It doesn't matter what tradition we come from, whether um, we're Buddhists or Jews or Christians, all those who are transformative leaders, I think we know have one thing in common, and that is that love is at the heart of liberation that love is at the heart of liberation. And so that when Mandela came out of jail, he said, I don't have time for revenge because you can't build liberation on anything but love. And so that's looking at, at on the grand scale, on the minute scale, it's each one of us having that commitment when we see the negative storylines even when it feels totally justified. You know, like he's woken me up again, you know, banging in through the house. And it feels so justified. And, and that feeling of wanting to get out of bed and open the door and, you know, scream. <laughs> and yet, and yet, it, that, that understanding of, of, in seeing the irritation, that I'm not actually seeing it right. I'm not, because there isn't caring there. And that's what sort of helps me to step back and say, oh, well then, how can I understand it? You know? So in, in, in asking myself, the question, what really happens next, is that the storyline is dropped. And you all, those of you who have sat for a while, know that it is the storyline that fuels suffering. Whenever we're in suffering, it's because we believe the storyline. And if we can drop the storyline, there's the capacity then to meet what's happening in a totally new way which is with presence and kindness. And so Kalu Rinpoche, you know, the very famous Tibetan teacher, said when he visited us here in the United States, particularly, he said, we're living in the world of thoughts, and it is our thoughts that are imprisoning us. And it was such a beautiful reflection of the reality of our minds that we do live in the world of thoughts. I had a friend who came back from a three-month retreat, um, and I asked her after she came back, well, so what, you know, how was it? Was the three-month retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts? And she said, you know, I saw my mind was like a garbage heap. It was just one negative thing after the other. And that is often how our minds are, isn't it? So it's, so it's that acknowledgement is acknowledging the reality, this is how it is. And why the Buddha's teaching is so revolutionary is he's saying, wow, this is how we begin to discern the truth. When, when different leaders take us into war, often, they don't have that capacity to see in their thinking when their thoughts aren't based on truth. And how do
do they not discern it? It's because they don't have that guideline. And we do. And that's the difference, is that we have the guideline. Is it kind? And so when the Dalai Lama at a meeting amongst Buddhist teachers a number of years ago where there was a lot of erudite different teachers talking about different aspects of the Buddha, um, gave a sort of talk at the end of the meeting. He said, I don't care about the Eightfold Path. I don't care if you call yourself Buddhists. I really care if you are teaching kindness. He was really saying the same thing. Is it kind? If it's kind, it's the grounds for truth and the conditions for truth. And so that gives us the foothold to begin to challenge ourselves. Does that mean we're easily able to renounce? No, it doesn't. Do we continue to have the same negative tapes come up around particular situations or people? Yes, we do. And at least we mark it and we say, I know I'm caught. And I know it's not the truth, even though I'm still caught. And just saying that aligns our mind to a different path. I know I have work to do on this, and I'm still caught. Fine. I know there's a little part, 10%, that's helping me not believe 100% the story about how totally irresponsible he is coming in through the, you know. I mean, that's a small example of the bigger one. Great, thank you. That was good. So, and I'm interested to hear from you how you have worked with patience, impatience, and what has supported you around it. What's supported you in cultivating patience? I know James has talked about it. Yeah. I'm really right in the middle of working with this. It's so timely that you gave this talk tonight. I really appreciate it. I, th I think um, for me what's hard is uh, because aversion arises so quickly and impatience or anger arises so quickly, I, I don't have the chance to see that it's not kindness. I mean, it's just so fast. Mm -hmm. And so it takes... Um, really careful noting uh, of the physical sensations that I now can recognize mm -hmm. as the precursors to that instant anger coming out. It's, so it's really paying attention to those. And I think also, uh, for me, I'm finding the little tiny annoyances are where I can do the work. Because mm -hmm. I can feel something that's really stupid to be annoyed about. I can feel that. Oh, well, why am I annoyed about that? Mm -hmm. And I can sort of, so I, I get a sense of what's, you know, what, what it's like when it's bigger. And I can deal with it when it's small. So I think that's where right now I'm learning to, uh, the, the, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning to see, oh, well, this isn't kind, like you're saying. Oh, right. this isn't kind. Right. And it's so small that, it, you know, I can right. see it. It's not right. already too late. Right, that's beautiful. Thank you. I, I think I heard... Um, were you working with Shanti Deva at some point, the the way of the Bodhisattva? Because he says the wonderful Tibetan teacher, he he says the way we grow patience is by working on forbearance with the little things, and by becoming um, used to working with the small things, we grow our capacity to work with the large things, and. Um, you know, and uh, you you just mentioned a friend of yours who has died recently, and I have a friend who has a tumor that's growing in her liver, and um, she doesn't have a spiritual practice. And I really see how blessed we are having a spiritual practice because we don't know 
when each one of us is going to get a diagnosis, like, um, what, what's his name? John. John, or like my friend. And, and having, having this, just what you're talking about, working on the small things, enables us, when big things come up, to actually work on the big things as well. And it's, it's sort of um, just such an incredible blessing to be here, and even just to even be in a discussion, because she was an activist and did a lot of really wonderful work in the outside world, but didn't and doesn't have the kind of capacity, um, has the capacity but not the training that we're doing to help her. So she's sort of on a crash course of how do I hold the discomfort and the waiting in the hospital and that, that patience in the face of so many obstacles, both in the body and then outside of the body. And in that, how do I find love? And how do I find love enough to entrust into it and to know that it will carry me beyond my body. That's, that's really the inspiration of, of the great revolutionary leaders and us too, because there's something inside of us already saying, I'm going to die and I need to find that path that allows me to face that final challenge with this open-hearted patience and kindness that will allow all the obstacles of the, of the dying process to happen in an open heart. And, and so it's just such an incredible blessing as a community like this for us to talk about it beforehand and contemplate it beforehand so that um, we have more resources yeah, thank you. Yes, yes the mic. Um, I just wanted to share that the word for me that is really resonating or that's um, like having a lot of meaning is more than the patience or <laughs> the kindness, but is the commitment. Ah, and that ah. it's really in reflecting in my, to my more challenging moments in my practice that it's really like, um, the, yeah, the first thing that I'll remember, yeah. remember is like, oh wait, but I'm committed to uh, something here uh, and it's not this, you know, and then it kind of, the next step will be like, uh, right, okay, love, patience, <laughs> understanding, you know, uh, but it's really like, Yes, yeah, so I'm yeah. really um, uh, happy to just hear you uh, use that word a bunch with that. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else want to share? Yeah, thanks. When, when I'm able in a, on any given day to find a quiet space inside my own head, at some point during meditation and then let that carry through the day, there becomes sort of a, a quicker fleeting awareness of little things as they keep cropping up. And one of the things that's been cropping up more lately just whacked me on the head a week ago, I guess, is, is little bits of aversion stuff. And I haven't studied personality types, but, but just to go, well, you go, oh, Wow, that was a little bit of a version. Oh, and that was two, and that was two. <laughs> it's like I haven't quite gotten able to count a thousand times a second, but but they happen pretty often. <laughs> like I may be close to a thousand times a minute sometimes. And um, one of the things that that I just loved that John Kabat-Zinn said one time is the Buddha, when he came close to the end of his life, was asked to summarize his teaching, and he said, "Nothing is to be clung to as I, me, or mine." And when I've been able to connect with that quiet spot during the day and let it sort of flow through the day, those little aversions, for instance, and other things too, 
pop up and I go, oh, that's not me. Let's not cling to that. That's not mine. That's just one of those things that's passing through. Just as the kindness, that kindnesses that flit just as fast sometimes, those aren't I, me, or mine either, but those are maybe things that are more beneficial to work on cultivating and, and saying, oh, let's, let's nurture that. Let's try and make that moment last two moments. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, as because I would like to end with a loving kindness, a forgiveness and a loving kindness, uh, to acknowledge that an awakened heart and mind is an expression of love. So it's sort of like when we're cultivating love, we awaken that unconditioned love inside of us, you know. So it's so that uh, in s so the impermanence of it actually it transforms into a, a, a s an unconditioned expression of it, um, and. Um, Just to say it another way, when we intend, as we're about to intend or align our minds to love, we're, we're aligning to a space and a reality of love that is kind of underneath the impermanence, that is always there. So that it, you've probably heard of the teacher Deepama, who um, taught some of us at IMS in the 80s, who was considered fully awakened. And she said in her mind there was nothing but equanimity and loving kindness and wisdom. That it was, it, that it is, it becomes this ground. And that when Bishop Tutu talks about Ubuntu, um, or Thomas Merton talks about the communion of love, they're acknowledging that there is a ground of being that is love, and that that is each one of our inheritance, that it lives inside of us and also outside of us. And so when we align our minds to love, even if we don't feel we're connecting to the ground of being, there is a way in which we're building the connection to it. So that's the movement to unconditional love. So let's move into, let's m take a moment and first begin with some forgiveness. And the Buddha said that no matter what we have thought or what we are thinking in this moment, no matter what we have done or are doing in this moment, no matter what we have felt or are feeling in this moment, we are always deserving of loving kindness. That there is never ever a reason not to love ourselves. In this understanding if you would like, opening our hearts to forgiveness as the beginning opening by unburdening the space from judgment and blame. May, may I forgive myself. May I allow myself to be a student of life and still to be learning. May I forgive myself. May I allow myself to be imperfect and to make mistakes. The same ones over and over again, even bad ones. May I forgive myself. 
If I can't forgive myself now, may I be able to do so in the future. I trust my own timing and development, and so I plant the seed that forgiveness might blossom in the right time and space for me. And just taking someone who, not, not a big thing, just a little thing where you have noticed your heart shutting down in judgment or blame towards someone. And seeing if for a moment you can let go of these energies. May I forgive you in the same way I have given myself space to be imperfect, may I allow you to be imperfect too. Maybe imperfect in different ways. In the same way I have allowed myself to be a student of life, may I allow this for you too. May I forgive you. And if I don't feel forgiveness now, no problem, I plant the seed that I might be able to forgive you in the future. And if you feel ready, allowing this person to leave your heart space and bringing in someone that you would like them to forgive you. Something you've said or done to someone, again, a little thing rather than a big thing, and you know they've had a hard time. And asking this person to forgive you. May you forgive me. May you too allow me to be a student of life and still to be learning. May you allow me to be imperfect and to make mistakes. And if you can't forgive me now, may you be able to do so in the future in your right time. Allowing this being to leave your heart and coming back to yourself, this beautiful being we call me. And honoring this life force in wishes for well-being. If you would like, including everyone here, Dear Sangha friends, may you have well-being as I have wished myself well-being. May you have well-being. And if you would like extending these wishes out to those that you love, and to all beings everywhere. <coughs> May your life be lived with ease and peace. May we live in harmony.
Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.